Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. You know, it's it's always a fun time when your first guest doesn't arrive. So, ah, here she is right now. Uh, hello, is that Don? I, yes, yeah. it is. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Welcome to the program. It's a real honor thank to have you uh, uh, with us today. You've done oh, a uh, tremendous. And I've thought over the years you've done a tremendous job, and uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Where are you? Where Where are you? Where's six four six? Well, we're in New Jersey. Oh, uh, okay. Our, prog- our program originates from New Jersey, and uh, nationwide. And uh, we're happy to report over the years we've had uh, many people from around the world, but the, but our program is centered on on the uh, the USA. And uh, we're so happy to have you with us today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, Ms. Pipes, before we uh, uh, go go into the topic, can you tell us a little bit about yourself personally? Because you've had a fascinating career. Uh, um, yes. Thanks. Um, well, um, I was born in Canada, um, on the West Coast in Vancouver. Um, I grew up in, in Canada. I'm an economist by training. I worked um, at the Fraser Institute, Canada's only free market think tank. Um, And in the late 80s, we started a publication called Waiting Your Turn, a guide to hospital waiting lists in Canada. And um, because the government had taken over the healthcare system um, in the 70s, and so we started to see that people were having to wait to get doctor's appointments, to get surgeries, to get um, tests. And so... In 1991, the opportunity um, came up to move to the States and run Pacific Research Institute. So being very distraught over Canada and its future, I packed up and moved to the U.S. I'm now an American citizen. And um, while I run Pacific Research and we work in areas healthcare, education, um, small business activities, um, the um, environment, uh, we have the Laffer Center at PRI, which is um, run by Art Laffer, father of supply-side economics. But my focus, um, my personal focus and what my business focus is, is on healthcare reform, having grown up under a single-payer government-run system. So I've been really making the case um, for over six years um, about how to uh, repeal and replace Obamacare with a healthcare plan that will bring about affordable, accessible, quality care for all Americans. Well, you hear... Um... Uh, this program has never been a real fan of Obamacare, 
and we saw yesterday that the, they finally uh, uh, announced the various changes for uh, uh, 2017, and we noticed that the Obama administration backed off a lot of its more onerous uh, regulations. Uh, yes. Um, well, the floor is now open. Uh, you, please uh, discuss anything you want to, and we'll listen because uh, um, everything you've written that I've read has, uh, has been right to the point. Oh, well, thank you. Okay, well, um, why don't we talk about Obamacare turning six, what, what's happened under the under the law, and what we see, what I see as a, a plan that would, um, assuming we get a Republican president, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going to happen, um, what, a, what an ideal replacement plan would be like. Very definitely. Go right ahead. So should I start talking? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Uh, this is um, a program where most of the guests do the talking, and I try to keep as quiet as I can. Oh, okay. Well, all right. Well, um, on March 23rd, coming up very soon this month, um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, will celebrate its sixth um, anniversary. Um, I thought that it probably would have um, been repealed much before now, but with the Supreme Court um, under Chief Justice John Roberts holding up the law um, back in 2012 and in 2015, and of course President Obama being re-elected um, in 2012, uh, the law is here. But the interesting thing is that the American people um, are still um, and increasingly dissatisfied with the Affordable Care Act, and Gallup shows that 54% of Americans would like to see the law uh, repealed and replaced. And the reasons for this are many, um, but most of all, uh, the president had promised the American people that if they liked their health care plan and they liked their doctor, nothing would change, and that the average family would see its premiums go down uh, by $2,500. Well, neither of those um, points that he made have, have proved to be true, and the uh, the American people are finding out that premiums their premiums are up. The average premium increase on the plans on the exchanges this year is 13%. Deductibles are up. The average deductible for you know, a family is over $3,000. The networks of doctors and hospitals that people have access to under the exchange plans are very limited. Um, and so... And then what they're finding, what we're hearing now, is that a number of the insurance companies that bought into the law back in uh, 2010 are now finding that they are suffering significant losses um, on the plans that they're offering in the exchanges. And this includes United, United Health, um, the Blue, or, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, Aetna, Cigna, and Humana. And so they're all making waves saying that because of their losses on the exchange plans, they may, um, they're seriously considering getting out of the um, exchange uh, market in 2017. And that being the case, um, that's another reason. If if the big insurers aren't in the plans, where are um, people who are enrolled in the plans, the 12.7 million Americans who signed up at the end of January this year, where are they going to get coverage? Because we know that the smaller firms have not been surviving, and particularly with these co-ops that were set up to compete in terms be more competitive and have um, offer options there were 23 co-ops set up around the country in various states 12 of them have already failed and eight of the remaining 11 are in financial distress so um, th things are not looking good for Obamacare it was um, um, under the reconciliation bill um, in January it was um, 
passed that was passed under Senator Mitch McConnell and um, uh, Paul Ryan, the reconciliation bill that passed would have gutted a lot of Obamacare, but unfortunately, the president um, vetoed the reconciliation bill and the um, overturning of Obamacare um, with his pen in the White House. So the law is here. We have to worry about um, who is going to win the presidential election this November, and is that president, if it is a member of the Republican Party, and if they have Congress, will um, they have the courage to repeal and replace Obamacare with a plan that will bring about affordable, accessible, quality care and not empower the federal government further? Well, uh, you have some very good ideas on this. What are your ideas for uh, replacing Obamacare? Well, the the plan that is in my new book called The Way Out of Obamacare, which was uh, published uh, this January by Encounter Books and is available on Amazon.com, uh, my replacement plan is there. And I think, you know, finally the Republicans are rallying around a replacement plan um, that is similar to what I'm offering, and I'll give you the details in a second. But I think the, the Republicans really need a single replacement plan that the that they can – um, they can support. And a few years ago, Newt Gingrich, former speaker, said the Republicans don't have a replacement plan. Well, in fact, the Republicans have many replacement plans. The problem is they haven't rallied around one. And I think uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan said just last week that they are going to bring out, they will release a replacement plan uh, early this summer prior to uh, the convention, the GOP convention in Cleveland um, in this this July. So this is encouraging, but my plan and what their plan should focus on is we need to we need a plan that empowers doctors and patients, not the federal government. And so, you know, in this country, 60% of Americans get their health care through their employer. They have no idea what the real cost of health care is because they if if they pay a small premium, if they pay part of a co- they pay a copay or they don't pay anything at all, um, they use a lot more health care because they think it's cheap or it's actually free. So we have what we call first-dollar coverage. So I would really like to see empowering doctors and patients as the first goal. The second goal is the federal government got us into this health care mess during World War II when wage and price controls were in. Employers got the ability to write off the cost of their health care that they provided for employees, and employees... Um, get their health care uh, with um, with pre-tax uh, dollars. Of course, their salaries are slightly lower because, you know, employers are covering the coverage. But if you lose your job or you quit your job and you go out into the individual market, you have to buy your health care with, with after-tax dollars. So I would like first to see the tax code change so that individuals can also get their um, health care coverage with pre-tax dollars and ultimately move away from the employer-based um, coverage, and so that we would all be have our health insurance individually through uh, programs such as health savings accounts. So that is that is a major issue. Um, my plan includes um, age-based refundable tax credit. So, depending on your age, if you're over 50, you would get a refundable tax credit of $3,000, where you could go out and buy coverage yourself. That credit would come to you, not to an insurance company, and you would be free to get the type of coverage. Uh, that you want. And Dr. Tom Price, his um, empowering um, um, uh, bill also um, focuses on 
age-based refundable tax credits. We need to expand health savings accounts. Health HSAs are, are the accounts are the is the program where you can put money in each year into a savings account. You have to combine it with a high deductible insurance plan, but it is tax-free and you can carry that money forward and use it for out-of-pocket exp- ex- health expenses. If you have, of course, a major um, problem, you use your high deductible plan. But right now, you, an individual can put away $3,350 in an HSA account each year. And if you're a family, 6750 I would like to see that amount um, boosted up at least to match the amounts that people can put into um, their IRA, their individual retirement um, accounts, so that it would be it would be even more of an incentive. But we have seen in a new study published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, they looked at spending data for 13 million people working for 54 large companies and found that the costs were significantly lower in each of the first three years after a company included an HSA account. So we really need to support HSAs because they do empower um, patients and put people in charge and their people become much more um, careful about how they spend their money when it's their own money. I would like to see... Sorry. Uh, no, you may not be aware, but uh, we uh, information strategies. Our, our parent company is the uh, 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 creates and runs HSA Finder. We very much believe in uh, HSAs and uh, believe they're the best uh, uh, investment vehicle available. Oh, absolutely, and and I have an HSA as well. And you know, it's it's really a shame that you know you can't contri- continue to contribute to an HSA um, once you reach 65 and you join Medicare, and even if you're working. So I think HSA should also be expanded so that people at age 65 and and older should be able to continue to contribute to an HSA. That'll take pressure off Medicare, um, which is you know. On you know, according to the Medicare trustees, um, could well be bankrupt by 2030 at a cost of over one trillion dollars. So we need to you know empower people. I mean, why we with with Medicare we need to increase the age of eligibility because when the program came into being 50 almost 51 years ago, people lived on average to age 65. Today they live to almost 80, and as a result, you know people are you know still fully able to work and so why should they be um you know um collecting medicare uh, getting being covered by medicare they should be um they should be you know able to be um insured under an HSA or privately insured and we also need to means test medicare i know a lot of people even wealthy people say well you know i am entitled to my medicare because i contributed to it well why should somebody like warren buffett you know be be on Medicare or even be eligible for Medicare. Um, you know, we really need to means test. We need to age, raise the age, and we need to, you know, um, do vouchers or premium support so that people can get the type of coverage they need. And HSAs are a tremendous way to put people back in charge. We also, under under my plan, need to encourage the states to do to do tort reform because remember the president said over and over again during the debate leading up to the passage of Obamacare that you know doctors do all of these tests and procedures because they want to line their pockets with money well in fact doctors do a lot of tests because they are afraid of being sued and the cost of medical malpractice insurance is 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 very expensive and but but you know it adds tremendous 
cost to our healthcare system. And PricewaterhouseCoopers says the cost of defensive medicine in this country um, is over $200 billion a year. So let's make some changes in the state, such as um, capping uh, punitive damages and non-economic damages. We have a micro-law in California, which has reduced defensive medicine costs. Texas did reform, and a lot of doctors, you know, came back into Texas. So we need to do medical malpractice reform. We need to reduce the costly mandates. There are over 2,100 mandates on insurance companies in this country. And then Obamacare put on top more mandates with the essential benefit plan. These mandates add 20 to 50% to the cost of a premium. If you want to buy a health insurance plan that covers alcohol rehabilitation, you should be able to buy one, but I may not want that and shouldn't be forced to cover what you want. So we need to reduce these costly mandates and let people get the type of coverage that they want. We also need to reform Medicaid, the program for low-income Americans under the Affordable Care Act. 13 million people have been added to Medicaid, bringing the total to 70 million Many states, of course, took the funding from the feds to expand their Medicaid programs. Um, Twelve states, including the District of Columbia, have not. Um, but, um, you know, because of this, you know, the, the president wanted um, people to stop using emergency rooms because it's very expensive for their care. But because of the expansion of Medicaid, doctors are often, in many cases, because they're reimbursed, uh, 38 to 42 percent below what they get for treating a patient with private insurance. They either are not taking Medicaid patients, or they are put are not they're making these Medicaid people wait a long time. As a result, emergency room use for on the Medicaid side for people on Medicaid is up 5.6 percent, exactly the opposite of what the president had promised the American people. So we really need to. You know, under my replacement plan, um, all of these things are are very important. The uh, people people with pre-existing conditions. I mean, people on the left keep saying, "Well, if you replace Obamacare with a type of plan like this, people who have chronic or pre-existing conditions won't be able to get coverage." Well, it is my belief, as well as many of the candidates on the Republican side, is that we need to. Um, for those people who get coverage when they're young, as long as they continue to keep their coverage and pay the premium, they shouldn't be faced with very high increases because they develop a, pre, um, a chronic uh, condition. Because when you have a risk pool that is large that covers all kinds of people, um, then then the, then the people with pre-existing conditions will be covered. One of the problems under Obamacare is that they had hoped, the administration had hoped that the young people, the 18 to 34-year-olds, would really be keen on signing up for exchange coverage. They said that 40% of young people in that age group should be covered, um, you know, should buy should buy coverage to make the program work. Well, in fact, only 28% of young people have signed up for coverage on the exchanges. As a result, the people who have signed up are people who are older and sicker, using a lot more health care. And this is the reason why companies like United Healthcare lost $720 million last year on their exchange plans, which were covering $500,000. Um, Aetna um, lost um, um, a tremendous amount of money. Humana, all of these firms, because the young people are not in the pool to cover those people. And the actuaries obviously miscalculated on what what the what the sign it would be on the exchanges by in the for the most part people that are older and who have 
um, pre-existing conditions. So my solution is, you know, we need to repeal and replace Obamacare with a program that empowers doctors and patients, not the federal government. And my ideas, you know, would work well to really um, get people, you know, interested in signing up for coverage, getting the type of coverage that suits them, because universal choice will be the key to universal coverage. And as um, Milton Friedman, my mentor, um, in his book, Free to Choose, has said said over and over again, the American people need to be free to choose the type of health care plan that suits their needs and those of their families. Wow. Wow. You gave gave us us a lot to think about. Let me... uh... Could I ask a couple of questions? I agree with most of what you say, by the way, as do a lot of other people. One of the interesting things, uh, I was talking to one of the top actuarial people um, who uh, were, was involved uh, years ago in developing all these, and he told me that they had actually had shown that the they did not believe the 40% figure of young people signing up simply because young people think they're immortal. Um, and, right. Yeah, you know, and uh, it's only when they get older that they begin to realize that the, t- the clock is ticking. And that uh, they had actually, uh, 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 what surprised him is they had uh, that the, the number that had signed up, 28%, as you indicated, um, uh, uh, actually did, they they felt the numbers would be much lower and that every actuarial um, study that they had done, and he was very heavily involved in it, uh, indicated that uh, uh, they indeed would not be um, uh, signing up and that the, the plan was doomed. But uh, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that the, uh, the administration... Uh, cook the numbers? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to say because I, I don't work in the administration, but there's certainly, I mean, there's been a lot of um, discussion about what John Gruber, the economist from MIT, had predicted about, remember, the law said um, subsidies would be available for those people earning between 138 and 400% of the federal poverty level uh, for those for those people who sign up on an exchange established by the state. And in fact, in that Supreme Court ruling, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, in a, it was a, um, a, a, a six to three decision, um, said that the subsidy should go to anyone in an exchange, whether it's established by the state yeah. or the feds. And so, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's really hard, hard to know. I do know that, you know, um, uh, HHS Secretary Sylvia Matthews, Burwell had predicted only 10 million would sign up on the exchanges this year, um, um, which is fewer than the the 21 million that the Congressional Budget Office had predicted. But in fact, of the 12.7 million who've signed up, Avalier Health has said, based on the previous years, of those 12.7 million, probably 15% of them will not pay the first month's premium. So we're probably looking at about 9, 9.5 million people this year who will have exchange coverage. And those young people, um, you know, are just, as you say, they're the young, they're the young invincibles. Nothing is going to happen to them. Why should they spend the average premium? 2016 is $408 a month. That's a lot of money for for young people when they feel nothing is going to happen to them, and probably it won't. And so, you know, it's that's, and then the problem is 
because under the law they had these special enrollment periods for people who had suffered, you know, a loss in the family or they'd lost their job. And so, of course, in the special enrollment period outside the open enrollment period, this year it closed January 31st, a lot of the people that signed up, they signed up for coverage, um, got treated, um, had their bills paid, and then they dropped their coverage. So this has put additional pressure um, on the on the insurance companies for covering these these people who are sick. Hmm. So I think it's unlikely that young people, um, you know, will you know will the number will go below above twenty eight percent because they they don't want an insurance plan that covers all of this, um, all of these um, these mandates and things. Young people would would want to set up a health savings account. That's the ideal time to set up an HSA when you're young. You put that money away. It moves hmm. forward. Um, tax-free. That is that is the, the way to attract young people into the market, not forcing them to buy an expensive $408 a month plan. Oh, uh, we could go on and on, but we have another guest uh, waiting to come on board. Uh, uh, Ms. Pipes, your uh, book again and where it could be found? It's called The Way Out of Obamacare. It's from Encounter Books, and it's available on Amazon.com. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, being with us th- today, and I, I thank you, uh, thank you, and our audience. And please come back again to talk some more. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. No, Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Jay, are you on? I am, Don. How are you this morning? I'm very good. Thank you for being patient. We we, we had a, a guest. Um, we always ask. You're head of business, small business for TD Bank. And the reason I avoid it, you have a very interesting name. I, I read it as De Marteau. Uh, did I get close? Very close. Uh, yeah, De Marteau, it's, it's a French-Canadian name. So if you use a Parisian um, pronunciation, it's De Marteau. If you use more Quebecois or Montreal-based, it would be De Marteau. So it just oh. depends on who you ask, but my parents always said De Marteau, so I followed suit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I wish I, I would call Mazzola oil and a few other things. So um, anyway, uh, uh, th- thank you for joining us and being so patient because you have a fascinating uh, uh, topic today. But f- first, tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself personally before we do anything else. Sure. Um, you know, I live in Connecticut. I work with TD Bank, which is uh, up and down the East Coast. Hopefully, some of your listeners have been into one of our stores or worked with us uh, commercially or visited our website. Um, I've been in financial services between GE Capital, CIT, and TD for about 25 years. Grew up in the Midwest in Indiana. And uh, my first job with GE brought me to the East Coast, and I've been out here ever since, and I've been at TD for six years, and it's a great bank. Hmm. Well, you know, many people don't realize that stands for, uh, TD stands for uh, Toronto Dominion Bank? That's right. Okay. Uh, it's interesting, uh, when I mentioned this to somebody, they, they said to me they did not know what TD was stood for. Um, which perhaps is what what was the original intent. But anyway, now, you're here to talk about visualization. And I, I'm going to just say to you, the floor is yours. Please tell us whatever you want to say about it because it's a fascinating topic. 
and the survey you sure. recently did. Sure. So, um, you know, what we'll do from time to time is we'll reach out to our small business customers in the small business market. So we um, and we do that in the form of surveys, and we do that so we can understand what they do, um, so we can become a better banking service provider for the industry. So this particular survey, we asked 500 business owners how they use visualization and if they use visualization. And, um, you know, the different business owners, it's interesting, um, the demographics of them, 80% of them had less than 10 employees. So this will affect some of the answers I'm going to share with you. Um, 40% of them had been in business for 15 years. So when we talk about starting a business, if you started your business 15 years ago, I understand memories can be a little foggy. Um, but you know, a lot of the businesses were well-established, less than 10 employees, 80% of them. Most of them were professionals. About a third of them were in you know, either insurance or finance, uh, real estate. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things is the, the most uh, common answer of why they started a business was because they had a vision to do it and they decided to follow it. So 46% of the people had a vision of what to do and went out and made it happen with their small business. Now, um, the survey was basically asking them, do you use visualization as a tool? And it focused on three primary areas. One is when you form the business or you do planning. Um, two is when you market to your customers. And the third one was when you train your employees. And, you know, I harp a lot on different, um, you know, uh, engagements that I'm on um, about business planning and how important it is. So if you think about what I said, um, 46% of the people that we surveyed started a business because they had the vision to do it. What I thought was interesting is we asked them if they used tools. You know, did you use a vision board or graphs or, you know, um, pictures when you decided to go out and form your business plan for the first time? And only 20% of them did. So 46% uh, percent of them said, I had a vision to do it, yet only 20% have the discipline to actually use some sort of visual aids. And we see that a lot in just general business planning. I think people in our prior surveys, small business owners always say, yeah, it's one of the most important things I do. But when it comes down to, do you do it every year? And do you have some rigor around putting your business plans together? We see the same result there. They don't always, they don't always put pen to paper or actually use tools to help them do it. Another interesting thing, and these trends, Don, kind of exist in all three of these different areas. One is kind of, you know, the planning, the marketing, and training, is that these trends tend to be here, right? So um, the first one is, you know, more young people do it than older. So 59% of, of the owners that are between 18 and 34, 59% of them say they use visualization when they form their business, where only 10% of people who are 55 or older did it. So dramatic difference there in age. The second thing is males tend to do it more than females. And 25% of males use visualization when they form their business, and only 15% of females do it. So I think um, what I've learned in time, let me just make this point that you can ask your question here is you know, I've seen different studies on the way males and female brains work and they're somewhat conflicting out there but a couple of the trends I have seen is males tend to be more spatial and visual and females tend to be more verbal so mm -hmm. I think that can explain why there's a difference there and then um, can I, I interrupt you point, then you can yeah, okay, yeah, please, sorry. no um, uh, Make your point. I think it's better. Go ahead, and then I'll ask the question. I'm sorry. Okay. 
Oh, no problem. So, um, and then the other one is, you know, smaller businesses. So businesses with less than 10 employees, only 10% of them use kind of documented um, visualization techniques and 60% of larger businesses do. So with, you know, 60% of businesses with up to 100 employees, more than 10 up to 100 do it. So again, 60 versus 10. And the 60% that are larger, I think it makes sense that they do it because if you're leading a larger team, you have to communicate with them more. And if you don't write things down or put them in presentations and have your business plans documented in vision, it's difficult to get everybody on the same page. So that was just the third point I wanted to make. Well, um, I'm curious. When you use the word visualization, and the reason I ask is I just got an email across my desk. Oh, what do you mean by visualization? Um, uh, more specifically. Sure. So, you know, I think it's it's two parts. The first one is, do you have a mental image of what you want your business to be? Or um, in marketing, you know, do you start with some sort of a mental image of what you want your advertising or your marketing message to be? And in training, you know, um, what's your mental image of what the training is going to be? That's the first part. And I think the second part of it, which is the more disciplined part, which is the, the, the heart of this question, is, how do you actually do something that uses visual aids? So are you using, um, are you documenting your plan? Are you putting uh, a picture of what your business is going to look like, like a photograph, a physical picture? Are you putting um, graphs and charts there that are going to be something that people can respond to because they're going to see it visually versus just just, just uh, vocally or just with numbers. So um, we kind of we kind of covered both parts. Do you, one, do you first visualize, and then two, what kind of tools and discipline do you use to actually make that vision more of a reality? Hmm. Well, that's, that's a great explanation. But, uh, but again, the listener was unsure. So please keep going. Um, some more results. It's interesting. Um, I would have thought just the opposite in terms of female. I've often thought that w women are much more uh, visual in their uh, uh, pursuit, but, you, but your studies seem to indicate differently. That's really interesting. I think so too. I think the you know the studies it, it, it diverges in one point, which I'll make here in a minute, but it does follow some of the um, just basic brain studies I've seen out there where you know, some of the brain studies have said that men are more spatial and visual and women are much more vocal and they have better social cognitive skills. So um, it, it's in alignment with that. Now, you know, I've seen studies that say that and I've seen studies that also say that men and women's brains don't work any differently. So you, know, you have to kind of pick and choose the studies you look at, but um, they have been out there. Even if I go back into the days I was in college, it, uh, you know, they were there. Okay, so... Um, Tell us more. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Sure, sure. So the second kind of area that visualization, we ask them if you use it in, is marketing and advertising. So 46% um, say that they do use it. And a lot of it, you know, if you think about marketing and advertising, a lot of it is visual in nature. So commercials or magazine ads or a lot of web pages are based on visual um, visualization. So, um, But what's interesting, it kind of shows a trend too. Uh, this next question was – you know, 61% of the people that use it when they help form their business did it. They use some sort of visualization and marketing and advertising. Well, only 36% that you know that didn't use it in, in the um, they didn't use it when they formed their business. They um, they also didn't use it here. So what that's saying is that 61% that did it in marketing also did it over in when they formed their business tells you at some point you either believe in it 
and you believe in documenting it. So you'll create a mental image and then you'll actually document it. The same trends existed too, where 78% of the um, younger business owners use visualization and marketing, and those were people under 34 years old, where only 38% of people 55 or older do it. <clears throat> About it equalized. Here's the one that was a little different with males and females. 44% of males do it in advertising, and 48% of women do it. Um, so it's swapped. That's the only um, one where we see it that that women do it more than men. They use visualization and marketing. But this is the same thing. Smaller businesses, um, you know, businesses with less than 10 employees, only 40% of them do it, and. Um, 70% uh, did it with larger, um, with you know between 11 and 100 employees. So, same trends exist. Younger um, business owners are doing it more. Um, you know, in this case, more women did it than men, and then the bigger businesses are doing it more, using visualization more. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting because uh, venture capitalists and people who uh, do these various programs to fund new companies say that um, uh, the presentations have gotten more sophisticated uh, as time goes on, but there are some, uh, and there's some issues in there, and, and that uh, now they're even seeing animated uh, presentations. Uh, did you go into this at all in terms of animation? No, we really didn't. No, we didn't. Um, we didn't ask that specifically, but we asked what kind of tools they use. And a lot of them use, um, you know, the, the most common ones are visual aids like photos or pictures. The videos were also in there too. So we did ask them what kind of visuals they use, and um, video showed up 12% of the time. Video often is the most effective way of getting something across. Um, uh, I have so many questions. What are some of the other things that you found in the survey? That, that we might be interested in, and can, can people? By the way, can people get copies of this survey and to uh, look at? Yep, yep. Just go to td.com. It's out there. And then um, the third area was training, and we found that um, only 35% of people say they use visualization and visual aids in training. 65% do not. And I think this could be skewed because a lot of the business owners that answer the survey, you know, 80% of them um, have only, you know, have less than 10 employees. So, but what we found here is the same trends exist. Um, you know, the younger folks are using it more, younger business owners are using it more than older. 65% of um, the owners under 34 use it. Only 25% uh, that were greater than 55 in age use it. Males, again, kind of are more dominant here. 40% of the males use it versus only 28% of females. But then, you know, um, only 25% of businesses with less than 10 employees use it, or 71% of the businesses with more than 10, you know, between 11 and 100 use it. Now, training, when you have more employees, it tends to be more regimented, more structured, so you'll create formal structures versus smaller businesses with less than 10, it's just train the trainer. You know, in a retail shop, uh, a clerk may train another clerk, or if you're running a restaurant, you know, the person running the front counter is training another one, uh, or a waiter is training a waitress, or vice versa, right? So um, they may just have more on-the-job kind of coaching with someone that's doing it, but more larger, established, smaller businesses tend to use visual aids and make more formal training. 
Um, so I do think, you know, the, the common theme I'd say for all your listeners, Don, is there's some level of discipline in this stuff. If you take what's in your mind and you're part of a larger company, the only way to get what's in your mind to that larger company or to your example, if you want to convince a private equity or a, a venture capitalist to invest in your business, you got to think about how you translate what's in your mind to that audience. And whether it's your employees, or your customers, or someone you want to invest in your business, that's a skill you have to develop. Yeah, Jay, th- this is a tremendous pr- presentation. You've done a tremendous job. Any final thoughts and and where can people reach you or any other information they want? You know, um, feel free to stop into one of our 1,300 stores up and down the East Coast. We're always ready to help small businesses. And, you know, we try to do a lot of things like this, um, as I was saying before, so we can understand our customer base better. And also we can uh, provide better banking services. So I really appreciate you having me on today. Well, thank you. Interesting. You call them stores. Before, they used to call them branches. But you call them stores. And that's a very interesting change. It is. We like we like the customer service mentality. We won. Um, I don't know if you know this, but we won JD Power in the Northeast this year, and a lot of that's all tied together. We think of, you know, our outlets as stores, and we think of our customers as um, real customers, and we try to serve them. So we try to use you know verbiage and vernacular that that makes our employees think of the customer that way. Great. I've not heard it before, and that's great. Uh, if nothing else, I learned something very valuable today. Thank you. Thank you very much, John, for having me on. Oh, thank you. Our next guest should be Molly Jacobson. Molly, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, no, uh, really happy to have you. Molly, uh, before we get into your topic, which I've been looking forward to, uh, this is the, today's program has really been exciting. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we do anything else. Sure. Well, um, I live in Florida, Tampa Bay, and um, and I'm the owner founder of Jacobson Strategy, a, a national marketing and public relations firm. But what we also do is one step further is working with small businesses to empower them with the strategy, support, and expertise to master their own marketing efforts without the expense of a marketing firm. And we do this with companies across the nation. Now, well, tell us a little bit more about that. Let's make that the focus of what we're talking about. Absolutely. So what we've found is that having the the availability of full-service marketing and public relations is very important for larger companies. It's essential, really. Or at least having in-house employees dedicated and committed and experienced and educated to really handle it. Um, What we also see, though, is there are millions of small businesses all over the country who don't necessarily have the overhead towards this type of service. It's very costly. So what we do is we work online, be it Skype or on the phone, or if they are um, local, we will meet with them in person, whatever works for them, and we'll coach them to empower them to utilize the tools, to provide them with a strategy, to provide them with a plan that actually fits to their schedules that they can comprehend. They don't need to have an MBA in marketing to be able to figure out how to do this. We want to make it really user and understandably friendly while holding their hands through the process. Um, something that we've seen is that for really three different areas. One is 
there's a business owner who just, you know, they're really focused on what it is the company does, and they're not putting the attention and resources into marketing. And, you know, that can only take you so far. Of course, it's going to limit you. Marketing is so essential, especially in this digital age that we're in. Hmm. Then there's a business owner who is spending a great deal more than they should be for having this full service. Um, You know, maybe it's really cutting into their ability to grow because it's costing them a great deal. As a small business, resourcing and determining where funds go is essential. And so that's tricky. Uh, And then there is ones who are trying to manage it on their own. The people who are out there, you know, giving it their best in marketing, but they don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clear plan. They don't have a major strategy. And maybe they're not seeing the kind of results they're hoping to. Or maybe they want to see if they can get better results. But either way, there are definitely so many different reasons why this approach can work for a small business owner. Well, keep going. You're on a a roll. (laughs) Well, what's great is we work with companies. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say, in, in this program, the guests do all the talking, if I can, if we can help it. Oh, well, that's fine with me. <laughs> but, um, you know, what we really have the great opportunity to connect with these small business owners. I mean, they are smart, capable individuals who have gone out there and started their dream of their business. And to then take away that power these firms do, especially for the small business owner, take away that power and say, you know what, we're going to handle it, that actually hinders them because instead they're not learning the strategies and the tools and the methods that they can be employing. And, you know, I think it's really about empowering the business owner to be able to say, I can handle this, I can take this on with the support and experts behind me holding my hand through the process. And not having to spend that really expensive price of a firm or an employee. And so this is just fantastic, being able to connect with these different business owners all over the country of vastly very different industries and being able to hear what it is that they're having a hard time on, what it is that they're not really dedicating their time on, and the fact that they don't necessarily have a strategy. And there's so many tools out there, so many that are just fantastic and perfect for a small business owner. Um, one of them that I, I think really highly of is Constant Contact. Um, I've just really enjoyed using that in the small business sphere. Now, small, Constant Contact is um, a newsletter creator, so you can connect with your audiences and, and really be able to keep them engaged through email campaigns. Um, another tool I recommend using um, is called Canva for creating professional graphics that really look as if you hired a graphic designer. Long, you need to be a Photoshop wizard to be able to have professional-looking graphics. You can utilize this tool. Um, and there's just so many others. Really, I think it's important that small businesses understand markets in this day and age. You know, being, you know, sideswept by so many other companies that are taking advantage of these tools. And it's important that, you know, you give your company and your employees and yourself the fighting chance of being able to really push forward and, and utilize this method that definitely increases sales, builds your brand, and, and gets you to where you really want to go. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, uh, the, the problem with many small business uh, leaders is the fact that they don't have enough time 
to do uh, everything they want to do. What is uh-huh. it? That, um, how, how do you get around that point? Now, I'm, my own business and people I talk to, they, they say we don't have enough time in the day. Um, do you advocate adding a person uh, on staff? or uh, What are some of the ways you get around that particular issue? Well, that's very important. So, of course, small business owners are very, very busy. There's no question about it. Now, what is really important, though, is being able to allocate and divide your time in a way that is most practical. Now, a lot of the times I've worked with small business owners who found, you know, they're doing some work that somebody else should be doing. They're spending too much time focusing on something that doesn't even need to focus. And so being able to together take a look and say, okay, what is your schedule? What, what are you focusing your energies on? What are the priorities? And how can we fit the marketing into your schedule? And so we create a plan based on our strategy that fits their schedule that's really easy to implement. It's not about taking over your life and, and completely rearranging everything. No, no, this is about really coming in and very easily fitting into what you already have going on and determining if there are opportunities to shift some things around. But we are there to help and support you through that process. We really want to make it as simple and easy as possible. And so being able to have us available to them via Skype, by the phone, by email, of course, is really, really great for them who are on the go, who are traveling, who don't necessarily have the ability to sit down and go over things. They need it to work on their schedule, on their time. And that's why this is really a a great approach for that individual, for that business owner. Um, And we also work with managers, not necessarily only the business owners, but um, operational managers, um, with office managers, with um, people who might be handled the role of marketing who maybe previously was just doing the administrative assistant type of work, or maybe they're expanding their position. So we offer that support to get them to where they need to be without having to go through a very lengthy and extensive process of trying to read every article and understand how does this apply to them. So we really tailor everything to that particular business, that particular industry, and make sure that everything is determined based upon their individual needs. So this is never a blanket approach. This is very much so focused on what it is that you need to go after. So that's determining your audience. So working together and being able to determine who that audience is, what's important to them, what are their values, where do they hear the news, where do they shop, and being able to determine the best methods to communicate with them, where our messages can be heard most clearly and visibly, but also determining what that right message should be. So being able to put the company's best face forward, determining what is the best story of this company? What is unique about this organization that sets them apart from the competition? And that's really, really crucial to set yourself apart from that competition, to be able to have the right audience to pull in customers and, and to be able to know what tools to utilize, what approach, um, and, and a way that's actually going to be very fluid and part of your your regimen. Um, it's going to be a very clean and simple process of implementation, and that's really important to be able to continue what is already essential, running a business or handling whatever task you already had, but also bringing this into your um, to your handling and doing it the right way the first time. Um, 
again, I can't stress enough how many small businesses there are that really aren't taking advantage of the really essential tools of marketing, not pushing themselves and, and achieving the success that they're capable of. You know, there is no reason to hold yourself back because you don't necessarily know marketing. You don't necessarily know how to connect to the media. That's that public relations aspect. And um, there's no reason, just because you don't have the budget, to pay for somebody to come in and do this or pay for a firm. That doesn't mean you should be held back. This is so crucial to your growth. And and we want to empower you to be able to tackle that hands-on and, and strongly. And um, and we really appreciate being able to have that opportunity to to learn about the different organizations and hear their concerns and what it is that they need to go go after. So um, it's really a pleasure. Well, let me ask you. Um, uh, I'm a small business. Let's say I I do widgets, and I w- I want to use your services. Uh, is it like do you say uh, you give me a monthly retainer? for a certain number of hours, and then uh, I'll pay more for additional hours? How does it work, <clears throat> or how do you work? Yeah. Well, every organization, like I said, is very different, and so we want to first listen to what their needs are and hear and discuss it with them. So what we do is we first sit down, we have a free consultation, and we talk, whether it be over the phone or on Skype or in person, and we talk about what it is that they need, and then we determine what the best strategy for them is. And so maybe they just need to get set up. And so for a month, we would have a certain amount of hours set aside of working together to build their strategy, to build their plan, and then they're off running. For others, they really, and I just encourage it, is being able to have at least six, 12 months of that constant support of knowing that we're there for them, of having the check-ins, of having the communication, of being able to reach out to us and ask questions and get the guidance that they need to stay on that track. Um, so we offer a very wide different um, offerings depending on that business's need, and we work fairly closely to ensure that it does fit within not only their budget, um, but to make sure that everything is being tackled as it should be. Well, it's, it's really fascinating. How did you come up with um, um, how did you come up with this approach? Well. Um, yeah, well, we've worked in, in the field with large and small businesses, all shapes, sizes, and industries. And what we really started to hear was that, you know, these small businesses, gosh, they really needed the help and they really needed the support, but they did not know what they needed to do, how they needed to do it. And that, you know, that firm, that, that hiring somebody just wasn't in their budget. And and so we heard that. We tailored our um, offerings to fit that need. And so now that is a really large portion of what we do. And to be able to see it in the faces and hear the voices of people all over this country who are really going after that American dream and being able to work to help them realize it, it's it's incredible. Oh, <clears throat> it seems so. Uh, uh, we heard about you about you from from various people. Uh, I'm just wondering, how did you come up with this idea? Well, you know, it really just became seeing and hearing what the needs were and, and brainstorming on how can we best offer this? How can we package this in a way that's going to be really easy and accessible and fitting their schedule? And with the availability of the online 
um, sphere and, and the technology that we have nowadays to be able to sit down and look at one another on Skype and see our faces and talk just as if we're in a meeting and have that communication or just sit on the phone and go over everything, kind of accessibility, that's so amazing, especially for a small business owner. And so just being able to kind of take that and see what we can do with it, that's what, that's how it all started. And it's been an amazing experience, and, um, you know, I, I feel very blessed to be part of this. Oh. Uh, Molly, how do people uh, reach you, your company, et cetera? Well, I encourage you to visit our website, jacobsonstrategy.com, and that's J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N, strategy.com. And um, if we have, if you're interested in the coaching, we do have a tab on the top. You choose coaching, and then it'll take you where you can schedule your free consultation. And we'll talk with you. We'll go over, you discuss your business, and determine what it is that um, would best suit you and how we can help. No obligation, of course. Um, but I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. And uh, it's really been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure uh, listening to you, and good luck in, uh, in the future. Have a good day. Thanks so much. You too. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you. And have a good day.